إذ جعل الذين كفروا في قلوبهم الحمية حمية الجاهلية فأنزل الله سكينته على رسوله وعلى المؤمنين وعلى المؤمنين وألزمهم كلمة التقوى وكانوا أحق بها وأهلها وكان الله بكل شيء عليما. When those who have disbelieved have put into their hearts disdain, the disdain of the time of ignorance, but Allah sent down His tranquility upon His Messenger and upon the believers and imposed upon them the word of righteousness, and they were more deserving of it and worthy of it, and ever is Allah of all things knowing. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 6 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 6-11, Palestine and Iraq, Part 1. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Palestine and Israel are rocked by the violence of the First Intifada. The United States leads a global coalition to force Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. After the Intifada and the Gulf War, Israel and Palestine make significant strides towards a lasting peace. However, the peace process begins to unravel towards the end of the millennium. And with that, let's take a look at the failure of the 2000 Camp David Accords. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to Season 0, Season 1, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and inshallah, much more to come. For more information, visit islamichistoryx.com. Camp David, 2000 The new millennium began with lots of fanfare, celebration, and relief that the so-called Y2K bug never came to fruition. Having survived impeachment and an embarrassing scandal involving a White House intern, President Bill Clinton was now in his last year of office. He hoped a peace deal between Israel and Palestine would improve his now-tarnished legacy. There was reason for him to be hopeful. As the lone global superpower, the United States had proven it could impose its will on the rest of the world. Saddam Hussein and Iraq were still contained under a no-fly zone and multiple sanctions. 
In August 1998, terrorists bombed the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, killing over 200 people. In retaliation, the United States launched cruise missiles at Al-Qaeda training camps in the Sudan and Afghanistan. These events were America's first introduction to Osama bin Laden, international terrorist and leader of Al-Qaeda. A year later, the United States led NATO into the Kosovo War. This campaign was promoted as a global alliance, but it was mostly just the UK and the US. NATO acted unilaterally and without UN authorization. American air power successfully forced the Yugoslav government to negotiate a treaty with the Kosovo rebels. And in the spring of 2000, Israel ended its 23-year occupation of southern Lebanon. With Israel gone, the power vacuum was filled by Hezbollah. That summer, President Bill Clinton invited Yasser Arafat and Prime Minister Ehud Barak to Camp David for talks. This was Clinton's last chance at salvaging the Oslo Agreement and securing his legacy. But nothing really came from these talks. Neither party was ready to make a deal, and the United States was not equipped to force them to make one. Furthermore, the negotiations were framed as the last chance to resolve the conflict, putting pressure on both sides to get as much as possible. During the Oslo Accords seven years earlier, with Israel and Palestine both exhausted from the Intifada, they were able to get many things accomplished. Things were different now. Back in 1996, when the right-wing Likud party came to power, Israel reversed course on many of its promises from the Oslo Accords. This taught the Palestinians that any agreement with Israel was only as good as the next election cycle. Israel also distrusted the Palestinian Authority. Despite Arafat's claims to the contrary, many Israeli officials felt he was at least partially responsible for attacks by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. After two weeks of negotiations at Camp David, the talks finally broke down. On paper, it was due to a disagreement over the status of Jerusalem. Israel claimed all of Jerusalem for itself, while the PLO wanted East Jerusalem to be its capital. But there was more to it than that. The reality is that the two-state solution was really not a solution at all. Israel would never agree to a truly independent Palestinian state. Yasser Arafat wanted to include assurances and mechanisms that would lead to an independent Palestine. But such a state would always be a security risk for Israel, so Ehud Barak resisted. This roadblock is what ultimately killed the Oslo peace process. The Second Intifada in the autumn of 2000, Ariel Sharon, right-wing politician and leader of the Likud party, visited the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. While there, he also visited Masjid al-Aqsa. Dubbed the Butcher of Beirut for his brutal invasion of Lebanon back in 1982, he'd been forced to step down as Israeli defense minister after the massacres at Sabra and Shatila. 
Sharon was a reviled figure amongst Palestinian Arabs, and some viewed his visit to Masjid al-Aqsa as a deliberate provocation. It should be noted that the Israeli government did inform the Palestinian Authority of Sharon's visit. The Palestinians agreed so long as he did not enter any of the mosques. As Sharon was ending his visit and about to leave, worshippers coming out of the masjid learned the butcher of Beirut was nearby. A riot broke out as Palestinians began throwing rocks at Sharon and his security detail. Israeli riot police soon arrived, shooting tear gas and rubber-coated bullets into the angry crowd. The crowd dispersed, but things were just getting started. This was the beginning of the Second Intifada. The next day, Israeli police responded to reports of Palestinian teens throwing rocks at Jewish worshippers at the Wailing Wall. The police opened fire, this time with live ammunition, killing seven Palestinians. This sparked further unrest, which just continued to escalate. Throughout the Palestinian territories, demonstrations and protests broke out. Israeli security forces used both rubber-coated bullets and live ammunition to quell the protests. Nearly 50 Palestinians were killed within the first five days, including 12-year-old Mohammed Adurah in Gaza. Mohammed Adurah's death was caught on camera as he and his father were trapped in the crossfire between Palestinian militants and Israeli security forces. Despite the father's desperate attempts to shield the young boy, Mohammed Adurah was shot and killed, most likely by Israeli forces. The violence was not limited to the Palestinian territories. In Tel Aviv, Jewish mobs attacked Arab Israelis. Several mosques in Israel were attacked and some Arab Israelis were killed by Israeli police. In October 2000, two Israeli soldiers wandered into Palestinian territory in Ramallah. Tensions were already high as several Palestinian youths had recently been killed by Israeli forces in the area. Palestinian police arrested the two soldiers and brought them to the station. Their intention was to transfer the soldiers to Israeli custody. But word got out that the police were harboring two Israeli agents and soon an angry mob had surrounded the station. The police tried to hold the mob back but were eventually overpowered. The mob stormed the station and killed the two soldiers throwing one of the bodies out the window. The mob outside the station continued to attack and beat the dead body. An Italian journalist caught most of this on camera and the footage was seen all over the world. Israel responded by sending in helicopter gunships to destroy the police station. By the end of the year, nearly 340 people had been killed, most of them Palestinian civilians. Amnesty International submitted a report on the first year of the Intifada. The report was heavily critical of Israel's use of force in quelling demonstrations. The Amnesty International delegation found that the Israeli security forces, in policing the violent demonstrations, had tended to use military methods, rather than policing methods involving the protection of human lives. The security forces had moved swiftly from using non-lethal, to lethal methods of control. They had breached their own rules of engagement, that allow the use of firearms only when lives are in imminent danger, and then only targeted to the source of fire 
and had used potentially lethal force randomly over a wide area. The weapons used, rubber-coated metal bullets, and live ammunition, were not suitable for policing demonstrations. On many occasions, Palestinian ambulances and first aid workers were hindered from giving aid. The Intifada Escalates In November 2000, Texas Governor George W. Bush defeated Vice President Al Gore in a hotly contested election to become the 43rd President of the United States. The election came down to votes in Florida where George Bush had won by less than 600 votes. Al Gore demanded a vote recount and for nearly three weeks, the world ignored the violence in Palestine to see who would become the next president. In the end, the U.S. Supreme Court ordered the recount stopped, handing Florida's votes and the election to George Bush. President George W. Bush, a Christian fundamentalist, was not interested in renewing the peace process. From his perspective, it was Israel's land to do with as they pleased. Besides, the whole peace process had seemed to be a waste of time and energy. A month before President Bush took office, elections in Israel brought Ariel Sharon to power. Angered by the Second Intifada, the Israeli public wanted someone who would take a hard stance against the Arabs. And who better to do that than the butcher of Beirut? Just like President Bush, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon had little interest in the peace process. Israel immediately stepped up its attacks against Palestinian targets. That spring, he authorized the use of F-16s against targets in Gaza. The Palestinian Authority was in a difficult spot. The Israelis blamed them for not doing enough to stop attacks and collaborating with the militants. And the Palestinians blamed them for not doing enough to stop Israeli attacks and collaborating with the Israeli government. The death toll rose and Palestinian life became nearly unbearable. Blaming the PA for this misery, Palestinian sentiment began shifting towards Hamas. In June 2001, a PIJ suicide bomber attacked a Tel Aviv disco, killing 20 people. In August 2001, a Hamas suicide bomber attacked a Sabaro pizza restaurant in Jerusalem, killing 15 people. In retaliation, Israeli helicopter gunships killed Abu Ali Mustafa, the leader of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Besides these, there were countless shootings, small explosions, and opportunistic attacks against soft targets throughout the year from the Palestinian side. The Israelis often utilized what they called targeted assassinations. Three weeks after the Tel Aviv disco attack, Osama Jawabiri from the Al-Aqsa Martyr Brigade was killed in Nablus by a bomb hidden inside a phone. The following month, Omar Saada, local leader of the Al-Qassam Brigade, was killed by Israeli guided missiles. A week later, Salahuddin Darwaza, a senior Hamas member, was killed when Israel fired anti-tank missiles at his car. But Israel did not only kill leaders of militant groups. Three Palestinian women were killed when Israel shelled Gaza in early June. In September, Israeli forces occupied Janine for three days, killing 13 Palestinians. Israel believed the Palestinian Authority was complicit. 
There is evidence that some members of the PA were working with the militants. Yasser Arafat claimed that he was fighting against them, but he was obviously not very effective. However, one could make the argument that there was little he could do since Israel kept destroying Palestinian Authority offices and infrastructure. Whatever the reason, Israel began to malign Yasser Arafat, blaming him personally for the chaos. 9-11 We all know what happened on September 11, 2001. Terrorists hijacked American passenger planes and flew them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. A fourth plane crashed in rural Pennsylvania. These attacks resulted in the deaths of over 3,000 innocent people and was the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history. President George W. Bush vowed to avenge the attacks and announced a war on terror. In a subsequent speech, he also announced an axis of evil, which included Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. According to President Bush, these traditional enemies of the United States were sponsors of terrorism and responsible for destabilizing the globe. American intelligence soon determined the attacks were coordinated and planned by Osama bin Laden, leader of Al-Qaeda. None of the hijackers responsible for the attacks came from any of the nations in the so-called Axis of Evil. But the United States wanted a war. Iraq was the weakest of those three nations. After nearly a decade of containment and sanctions, the Iraqi military was a shell of its former self. But the United States could not justify a war just because Saddam Hussein was evil. The United States had to build a case for war against Iraq. The Bush administration accused Iraq of threatening its neighbors and developing weapons of mass destruction. On September 12, 2002, a year after the attacks, President Bush addressed the UN General Assembly. He accused Saddam Hussein of violating various UN resolutions put in place after Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990. He accused Saddam of supporting terrorism abroad and persecuting minorities at home. And he cast suspicion on Saddam's compliance with UN demands to cease development of weapons of mass destruction. President Bush argued that Saddam Hussein was an existential threat to the globe. According to Bush, Saddam's regime threatened American lives as well as those in the region. The month after President Bush's speech at the UN, the United States Congress voted to authorize military force in Iraq. While nearly all Republican congressmen supported military intervention in Iraq, a significant number of Democrats supported it also. These included Senator Hillary Clinton of New York, Senator Joe Biden of Delaware, and Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts. Representative Bernie Sanders of Vermont, however, voted against the resolution. President Bush hoped the United Nations would rally to America's side just like they had done for his father a decade earlier. This seemed plausible since, after the attacks, the world supported the United States' toppling of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. The American propaganda war continued the following year. In February 2003, Secretary of State Colin Powell also addressed the United Nations. 
He presented satellite images detailing locations in Iraq where Saddam Hussein was supposedly creating and storing weapons of mass destruction. He accused Iraq of falsifying documents to hide its production and acquisition of WMDs. And he reminded the UN how Saddam had used chemical weapons against ethnic and religious minorities in the past. The Americans were surprised and insulted when the UN did not go for it. The United States decided it would have to take care of Saddam Hussein itself. The U.S. cobbled together a multinational force on its own, or what President Bush called the Coalition of the Willing. The multinational force was made up of 49 nations, but only six of them provided troops or any sort of direct military aid. Of these six, the vast majority of troops came from the United States and the United Kingdom. Most of the other European nations that supported the invasion did so to gain admittance to NATO. These were former Soviet republics or satellites that wanted protection from Russian aggression. It is not a coincidence that Bulgaria, Slovenia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, and Slovakia all became NATO members in 2004. Domestically, most Americans supported the war. Still reeling from the September 11th attacks, many Americans brought into the neoconservative hubris that war with Iraq would eventually bring democracy and stability to the Middle East. The United States' attitude was similar to Britain's just after World War I. Great Britain ignored hundreds of years of history and thought it could force its will on the people of Iraq. The United States was about to learn the same painful lesson Great Britain learned 80 years earlier. Palestine after 9-11 The Palestinians suffered disproportionately from President Bush's war on terror. It did not help that the media caught video footage of Palestinians celebrating the 9-11 attacks. The footage showed a small group of Palestinians, many of whom were children, handing out fruit and shouting Allahu Akbar at the news of the attacks. The official reaction from Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian Authority was one of condolences, sorrow, and regret. But for most Americans, including a future president, all that mattered were the celebrations. Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon used the attacks as an excuse to crack down even harder on the Intifada. He also made it clear that Yasser Arafat was responsible for the whole thing. Sharon even declared that Arafat was his bin Laden. At the same time, the United States knew it needed the support of Muslim nations in its war on terror and upcoming war against Iraq. President Bush suddenly changed his attitude regarding the peace process and became fully committed to the two-state solution. At first, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon dismissed the idea. But pressure from Washington forced him to begrudgingly come around. However, as mentioned before, it is unlikely Sharon or any other senior Israeli politician really supported a two-state solution. This was all about political expediency and maintaining the image of pursuing peace. Even if Ariel Sharon did consider a two-state option, 
he refused to work with Yasser Arafat. Four days after the attacks in New York City and D.C., Israel launched missiles at Palestinian targets in the West Bank and Gaza. These strikes, allegedly in response to mortar fire from the Palestinians, destroyed the Palestinian Authority's intelligence office in Gaza and a police station in Rafah. Two weeks later, Israeli forces killed 13 Palestinians during a demonstration. The following month, Israeli troops, bulldozers, and tanks occupied the Palestinian section of Hebron. By the time they left ten days later, six Palestinians were dead. Within six weeks of the 9-11 attacks, Israel had cut off or surrounded every major Palestinian neighborhood in the West Bank and had killed over 150 Palestinians. The United States called on Israel to withdraw and enter negotiations with the Palestinian Authority. Ariel Sharon refused and the onslaught continued. He blamed Arafat for the disaster, accusing the Palestinian leader of creating a coalition of terror. Hamas and other Palestinian militant groups were also active. In mid-October, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine assassinated an extreme right-wing Israeli politician. In early December, Hamas suicide bombers attacked a mall in Jerusalem, killing 11 Israelis. The next day, another suicide attacker killed 15 people on a bus. This cycle of violence continued on into 2002, culminating in a Hamas suicide attack at a hotel in Netanya during Passover. 28 Israelis were killed. Two days later, Israel launched Operation Defensive Shield, sending tanks and armored bulldozers into Gaza. During this operation, Israel bulldozed houses, set up checkpoints, and arrested several suspected militants. By the time the operation ended six weeks later, the Palestinian Authority in Gaza was practically dismantled and almost 500 Palestinians were dead. Ariel Sharon decided it was time to do in the West Bank what had been done in Gaza nearly a decade earlier. He came up with a plan to separate Israel from the Palestinians. He hoped this plan would make it easier to fight Palestinian militants and contain the Palestinian Authority. The first part of his plan was to build a wall. In spring 2002, Sharon's government approved the construction of a wall separating the Palestinian territory of the West Bank from the rest of Israel. And since there were many Israeli settlements within the West Bank, this wall would often cut deep into Palestinian territory well beyond the so-called Green Line. This apartheid wall, as some human rights groups called it, would eventually cause the Palestinian economy to fall by 40%. The second part of Sharon's plan would come later. Operation Iraqi Freedom On March 17, 2003, President George W. Bush issued an ultimatum to Saddam Hussein. Take your sons and leave Iraq. When the 48-hour deadline had expired, the United States launched Operation Iraqi Freedom. To no one's surprise, the war was over pretty quickly. Many Iraqi units refused to even show up, simply taking off their uniforms and staying home. 
The United States destroyed key Iraqi military and infrastructure targets, deploying its normal shock and awe strategy. Within two weeks, U.S. forces had occupied Baghdad and effectively conquered the nation. On May 1st, aboard the USS Lincoln, President Bush announced mission accomplished, declaring the end of major military action. Eleven days later, American diplomat Paul Brimmer was appointed Administrator of the Coalition Provisional Authority, or CPA. Paul Brimmer was going to run Iraq until a new government was formed. One of Brimmer's earliest and most controversial moves was to implement a policy he called debathification. Under this policy, all Iraqi government employees who were members of the Ba'ath Party in Iraq were immediately dismissed from their jobs. Their pensions were also frozen and they were banned from holding any future positions with the government. Brimmer also foolishly dissolved the entire Iraqi military. This irrational move put hundreds of thousands of trained and disgruntled soldiers out of work. He also banned high-ranking military officers who were often well-connected and influential members of Iraqi society from holding any position in the new government. Iraqi Politics Paul Brimmer and the Coalition Provisional Authority created the Iraqi Governing Council. Made up of several leading Iraqi politicians and leaders, the IGC was to help advise Brimmer and the CPA on the administration of Iraq. In June 2004, power was transferred to an Iraqi interim government with former political dissident Iyad Alawi. This new government did not have much authority, but the day-to-day -day administration of Iraq was no longer handled by the Americans. The following January, Iraq held its first elections, voting in the Transitional National Assembly. Shiites took 47% of the vote, while Kurds took 25%. However, most Sunni Muslims boycotted the elections. A few months later, this transitional parliament selected Kurdish politician Jalal Talabani as president of Iraq. Talibani in turn selected Shiite politician Ibrahim al-Jafari as prime minister. The Kurdish regions in northern Iraq worked out a deal where they would have their own president who worked alongside Talibani. Elections were held again in December 2005, this time to ratify a new Iraqi constitution and parliament. Shiite politicians won 128 seats. More Sunnis participated this time and they won 55 seats. The Shiite-controlled parliament initially selected Ibrahim al-Jafari as prime minister. However, opposition from Sunni and Kurdish politicians forced him to step down. Saddam Hussein and his two adult sons went into hiding soon after the invasion. His sons, Uday and Qusay, fled to Mosul taking refuge in a well-guarded villa. U.S. forces tracked them down in July 2003 and a gun battle soon followed. By the time it was all over, Uday and Qusay were both dead. Meanwhile, Saddam Hussein also went into hiding, periodically sending messages to his supporters, encouraging them to carry on the fight against the invaders. Military investigators followed tips and questioned hundreds of people in their search for Saddam. 
Using this intelligence, they tracked him to his hometown in Tikrit, about 125 miles south of Mosul. During their investigation, the U.S. arrested several members of Saddam Hussein's extended family. Eventually, someone cracked and gave the Americans an idea of where Saddam was hiding. On December 13, 2003, U.S. forces narrowed down Saddam's hiding place to one of two farms near Tikrit. After an extended search, they pulled him out of an underground shelter. To everyone's surprise, the former dictator surrendered without a fight. The Sunni Insurgency The insurgency against the U.S. occupation began soon after President Bush declared, Mission Accomplished. On August 19, 2003, an explosion rocked U.N. headquarters in Baghdad, killing 23 people. The following week, a car bomb killed over 90 people at a Shiite mosque. For the next year and a half, insurgents attacked Shiite, American, and foreign targets throughout Iraq. Car bombs, suicide attackers, and armed militants were utilized in this campaign. According to U.S. intelligence, the mastermind behind many of these attacks was a man named Abu Musab Azarqawi. Abu Musab's group went through various names before finally settling on Al-Qaeda in Iraq, or AQI for short. In addition to AQI, there were various Sunni, Kurdish, and Shiite militias. One 2005 report estimated there were at least 75 Sunni militias operating in Iraq. These militias held various ideologies ranging from simple anger at the invasion to religious extremism to ethnic nationalism. These groups found many willing recruits among the thousands of jobless men Paul Bremer fired at the beginning of the occupation. It would be a mistake to think these militias were disorganized bands taking advantage of the post-war chaos. While the insurgent militias did not have a detailed hierarchy, they all had leaders who often collaborated and planned together. Al-Qaeda in Iraq preferred massive, high-casualty attacks, usually at Shiite gatherings or government recruitment centers. However, militias such as the Iraqi National Resistance was made up of former Iraqi military personnel. They used their expertise to attack coalition forces either in open battle or with improvised explosive devices. This insurgency is often labeled a Sunni insurgency as Sunni Muslims were behind many of these attacks. The common thinking was that the Sunnis of Iraq were angry and afraid about living under a Shiite government. But the problem was deeper than that. Iraq had been under sanctions for years, crippling its economy and impoverishing a once wealthy and prosperous nation. Two wars against the most powerful nation on earth did not help matters. And even though Saddam Hussein did persecute Kurds and Shiites, he did not shy away from killing, jailing, and torturing Sunnis who crossed him. All of this is to say, the Sunni Muslims of Iraq were not upset when Saddam Hussein went away. When it became clear the United States intended to invade Iraq, most Sunni Muslims took a pragmatic attitude. 
Since Sunnis had the most governmental experience, they expected the United States would work with them until a new government was formed. The Sunnis assumed the U.S. would not hasten to put Shiites in charge of the government considering their general lack of experience and ties to Iran right across the border. As the invasion got underway, rumors and conspiracy theories began to crop up stating the U.S. actually wanted to remove the Sunni influence from Iraq and turn it into a Shiite nation. And when Paul Bremer decided to debathify Iraq, this just confirmed Sunni suspicions. Once the invasion was over and law and order broke down, the Sunnis found themselves at the mercy of AQI and other militant groups. Since the United States neglected to work with the Sunni tribes from the beginning, the Sunni tribes decided they had to work with the militants instead. By the time the interim government was in place, the Sunni tribes no longer trusted the Americans. As the violence in Iraq spiraled out of control and the casualties mounted, the world had one question for President George W. Bush. Where are the weapons of mass destruction? In the next episode, we'll continue our discussion of the Second Intifada in Israel and the American occupation of Iraq. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Problems in the Holy Land. The problems Salahuddin was dealing with in Damascus were nothing compared to the chaos in Jerusalem. The Kingdom of Jerusalem, the largest and most powerful crusader state in Utremer, was ruled by King Baldwin IV, and the king was dying of leprosy. 
King Baldwin's condition had worsened considerably in recent years. His body was covered in painful ulcerations and he had lost his sight. He was no longer able to ride horses and had to be carried about in a litter. This led to a power grab with various parties vying to profit from the king's inevitable demise. One family in particular, the powerful House of Ibelin, was particularly influential in Jerusalem politics. The Ibelins controlled the lands between Jaffa, on the Palestinian coast, to Ramla, about 20 miles west of Jerusalem. They were led by two brothers, the barons Balian and Baldwin. Balian of Ibelin was married to Maria Comnena, the widow of King Amalric, father of the leper king. For context, the character Balian was portrayed by Orlando Bloom in the 2005 Crusader epic, Kingdom of Heaven. The Ibelin brothers, Raymond III of Tripoli and Bohemond III of Antioch, conspired to dethrone the leper king. They knew that as long as Baldwin IV clung to power, the kingdom of Jerusalem was vulnerable to the Muslim states uniting under Salahuddin. They tried to arrange a forced marriage between Sibylla, the king's sister, and Baldwin of Ibelin, which would put the Ibelin family in line for the throne. But the leper king outsmarted them. When he learned of their plot, he arranged for his sister to marry a French noble named Guy of Lusignan. This shocked the Ibelins and Raymond of Tripoli, who considered Guy of Lusignan an outsider with no connection to Outremer. Salahuddin goes on the offensive. While the Franks plotted against each other, Salahuddin prepared for another invasion of Palestine. In September 1183, he led his army out of Damascus, moving at a slow, deliberate pace. This allowed other units coming from the various corners of his empire to catch up. When the Franks heard Salahuddin was on the march again, they hurried to assemble a force to meet him. Guy of Lusignan's first battle in Outremer would be against the most powerful Muslim ruler in the region. 